welcome back to the World of Sharks podcast, formerly the Whole Tooth podcast, a show all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host Isla and every episode I sit down with experts in shark science and conservation to take a deep dive into a different part of the wonderful world of sharks. This week, we are zooming out a wee bit to take a look at shark and ray conservation on a global scale. As we all know, shark and ray populations across the world are in free fall. The most recent studies state that there has been a staggering 71% decline in all oceanic shark and ray species in the last 50 years. This is something that we talk a lot about on this podcast and something else that we mention a lot is how little we actually know about the species we are losing so incredibly fast, which actually makes protecting them that much trickier. But it's not all doom and gloom. One of the things that really helps me when I'm feeling a little bit down and anxious about the state of things and one thing that I hope will help you guys listening at home is just how many creative, passionate and highly skilled people are out there working collectively to solve these complex problems and help reverse species declines. And three of them are my guests today. Dr. Rima Jabado is chair of the IUCN Shark Specialist Group, which is now recognized as the leading authority on the status of sharks, rays and chimeras, and has recently finished assessing the status of all known species. She has over 20 years of experience in fisheries and threatened species research and her PhD focused on shark populations along the UAE coast of the Arabian Gulf, the first long-term project to have been completed on elasmobranchs in the Northwest Indian Ocean. Rima is also a member of the IUCN Conservation Committee and is the appointed scientific counsellor for fish for the Convention on Migratory Species. Dr. Emiliano Garcia Rodriguez is a marine ecologist focused on the conservation and sustainable management of chondrichthians. His PhD focused on understanding how juvenile white sharks were using a nursery area in the Northwest Pacific, using acoustic telemetry, chemical tracers, and local traditional knowledge from fishing communities. For the past 13 years, he has been involved in interdisciplinary groups working for the management and conservation of sharks, especially in data poor areas. His research has led him to work with a huge range of stakeholders, from government agencies to fishers and tourist service providers and non-governmental organisations to help aid the sustainable management of sharks and inform the designation of marine protected areas. And Kieran Hyde is a marine and elasmobranch ecologist from the Gold Coast, Australia. Her research focuses on rays and stingrays to determine the effectiveness of current methods to protect them and how to improve management to support their conservation. Before this, she worked on large sharks, including white, tiger and bull sharks, using various research methods to understand their movement and migration patterns, as well as urban impacts on the species. She has also worked as consultant to the Secretariat of the Pacific Regional Environmental Programme in Fiji. Now, as well as being fantastic scientists and amazing advocates for shark and ray conservation, Rima, Emiliano and Kieran have another thing in common. They are all part of the team working on important shark and ray areas, or ISRAs to give them their short name, an initiative led by the IUCN Shark Specialist Group that aims to bring together all the available information on sharks and their relatives around the world to identify critical areas for these species 
and make this information accessible to managers, planners and policymakers so that they can implement adequate conservation measures for sharks and rays. Up until now, the evidence that can help make these decisions has been largely fragmented, either staying within academic circles or confined to specific locations. What the ISRAS project aims to do is to gather together all of that evidence from all corners of the globe and literally put it on the map, which is no small task. We said that before to save sharks, we need global coordination. And this initiative is helping to do just that. I was lucky enough to catch up with Rima, Emiliano and Kieran at Impact 5, which was the fifth International Marine Protected Areas Congress, which took place in Vancouver in Canada way back in February. Now, I was there because I work on marine protected areas in my other life and they'd all been flying the flag for sharks and rays at the Congress. So we thought it was a really good opportunity to record this podcast episode, which we've wanted to do for such a long time. And I'm really grateful that we managed to find some time to do this because things like Impact 5 are always super hectic and really exhausting. You're talking to lots of people and giving lots of talks and workshops and using a lot of brain power. But we managed to do this at the coffee break. Uh, so we'd all had coffee and donuts and were adequately fired up on caffeine and sugar to be able to chat about our mutual favorite things, sharks. In this episode, we talk about what an important shark and ray area is, how they came about, and what the process of identifying an ISRA looks like. We also chat about their very first workshops, which took place in October last year in the Central and South Pacific region, which identified an astonishing 74 ISRAs. This is a really ambitious, important and fast moving project that you'll want to keep an eye on. So we'll leave links as to how you can do that in the show notes. But for now, I'll stop rambling on and hand you over to Rima, Emiliano and Kieran, who can explain things much better than I can. If you like, grab a hot beverage and something sweet of your own and let's dive into our episode. Hello, Rima, Emiliano and Kieran. Welcome to the World of Shocks podcast. It is such a pleasure to have all of you. And I know that we, we are at Impact 5 in Canada, the International Marine Protected Areas Congress. And I know we're coming to the end. We've done a lot of meetings. You guys have just done an amazing session on ISRAs, which is what we're going to talk about today. So you all must be knackered. So I'm very, very happy that you've agreed to do the podcast for us. But just to kick us off, uh, for our listeners, I wondered if you could all explain in your own words who you are and what you do. So Rima, I will come to you first on this one. Hello, Ayla. Thank you for having us. My name is Rima Jabado, and I'm the chair of the IUCN Shark Specialist Group, amongst many hats that I wear. But um, as the chair, I facilitate a network of over 230 members from around the world that are all working to um, research and conserve sharks, rays and chimeras. Just a, just a small network of people. <laughs> yeah, fantastic people. So that's a positive thing. <laughs> uh, and Emiliano? Hi, Ayla. Thank you for having us here. I'm Emiliano. I'm from Mexico. I'm working right now on the ISRA project that we'll be talking about a little bit more in detail. 
And you're also a Save Our Seas project leader as well? Yeah, I'm, I'm working with um, Kel Forest and how astronauts are using it. So hopefully we'll be talking about that also. Yes, yes. Uh, you are on the list, so you're not getting away with it. Okay. <laughs> and Kieran. Thanks, Isla. So I'm Kieran Hyde. Um, I was hired as a consultant with the IUCN Ocean team to help facilitate all the development of the criteria with the ISRA project. I'm also a shark and ray scientist, and at the moment I'm also working on spatial protections of endemic threatened sharks and rays in Australia. Mm, beautiful Australia in a very different climate to what we're in at the moment. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we came from a heat wave straight to oh, no. middle of winter, so haven't acclimatised. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I can't, unfortunately, I can't say the same thing coming from Scotland. Unfortunately, it is exactly the same weather here as it was over there. In fact, it's it's raining more here than it is in Scotland, which is quite which is quite something, I must say. Um, but we do have one question that we ask every single guest who comes on the podcast, and we love to start the podcast with this one. And that is, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? So... I will start. We'll go the other way around. So, Kieran, I'll come to you first this time. I had to think about this one because I was like, do you want a good experience or just like a really memorable experience? Oh, <laughs> well, people normally do like good and memorable. But if you have, if memorable means something different to you, then then go for it. A good one would be watching the sunrise under the water with a whole school of eagle ray. That was a good oh, one. Wow. But a memorable one was probably being attacked by a dolphin for trying to give it a fish. Attacked by a dolphin? <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> I feel you need I feel you need to elaborate on this story. <laughs> You're going to leave it there. Um, so I used to work feeding wild dolphins in Australia and there was one particular dolphin that he was a big dolphin and I found a really big whiting one day and I thought that he would really enjoy eating this whiting but he didn't, he spat it out at me and then went really far out to sea. So I went to go and get him to come back in to continue the feeding. Mm -hmm. And he instead came flying at me and took out my feet and just, I ended up riding him for about five meters <laughs> before oh. he took off again. Wow, okay. So, I mean, definitely working in the right field, working with sharks then. Don't work with dolphins, people. <laughs> Jeez, oh, how about you, Emiliano? Have you ever been attacked by a hungry cetacean? <laughs> Not by a dolphin, but by other animals, yeah, at some point. <laughs> but I think my most memorable thing in the ocean or ocean-related was when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I was around seven, I think. Mm -hmm. My mom took me to the aquarium in the southeast part of Mexico where I'm from. And I saw my first shark in the big tank mm -hmm. and when I take off to the local beach there was a, a fisher that just came with sharks coated so I just got to see this these two sides of sharks oh, wow. and since that moment I knew that I want to work with sharks. Right from an early age getting both sides of the coin yeah that's pretty that must have set your uh, set the trajectory like for your whole career. What kind of shark was it that you saw in the aquarium? It was a sharp nose shark, the one I saw caught, and in the aquarium it was a tiger. Nice, cool. 
informative experience. That's so lovely. And Rima, how about you? Maybe a stereotype answer, but every time I'm in the water and I see a shark, it's memorable. It's um, It used to be a lot more common. It's become a lot less common. And I feel like every time that we have a chance to see one or groups or aggregations or anything of sharks rays, it's, uh, it's definitely memorable and uh, yeah, something that I cherish and I feel priv- privileged to see. So, yeah. It is certainly, it's something that I've never got over and I know every single person who works in the shark world or even works in the ocean space are just so enamored with them and that was that was proven to me by just how many people just came to your session so we had quite a small room but there were people standing at the back there were people sitting in the aisles you know wanting to hear more about uh, important shark and ray areas and that's what we're going to talk about today on the podcast so one of the questions that we get asked a lot so we talk a lot about threats to sharks and what's happening sort of in the world of sharks but one of the questions we get asked a lot is okay so what's being done to help sharks especially on a global scale. Um, so we've had a few people talk about their um, own initiatives you know, in their country or local initiatives, but this is very much an international, uh, international project. So the easiest place to start is obviously um, what an important shark and ray area is and how that is defined. Um, so whoever wants to go for this one can answer it. Simple, maybe not so simple definition, but the one we're going with is that important shark and ray areas are discrete portions of habitats that are three-dimensional and that are important for one or more shark, ray, or chimera species, and that have the potential to be delineated for conservation. Mm-hmm. So these these areas that we know are critical for the different species and for the different biological processes um, that, that that happen within those areas and that we can potentially use for spatial planning. And you say and a tri-dimensional comes into the definition, which sounds kind of like something from outer space. <laughs> um, can you explain a little bit what you mean by that? The ISRA project is uh, emulated from uh, the EMA process, which is the important marine mammal areas process. And part of the definition comes also from that other process. The one key difference is that um, areas that are delineated for marine mammals are always areas that encompass surface waters because marine mammals need to come out to breathe. With sharks, many species are deep water species, and so they never need to come up to the surface and um, often inhabit areas that are in waters of different depths, so sometimes between 600 to 1,000 meters. And being able to delineate areas under the water column is really important for us to make sure that we also consider the habitat needs of those deep water species. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And um, I think we were talking uh there was a really good question in the session earlier, which was, will all ISRAs go from the surface down to the depth of where, wherever that shock's, or whatever that shock's depth range is? Um, and the answer was, I believe, no. So it's going to be, the boundaries are going to be set by the best available science, which we will get into in a little bit. But you touched on it just then, Rima, in how the concept of ISRAs first came about because the idea of having 
like a spatial tool for conservation, you know, isn't isn't a new idea. It is you know relatively new for sharks on the scale that you're doing it. Um, but I just think it's it would be really interesting to know like how that idea came about in the first place and sort of where where it came from um, and 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 how it came to be. The, like you say, the idea is not new. The birds came first. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they always seem to get uh, very good ideas <laughs> and, and start working. They do, don't they? Everyone always starts with the birds. Yes, so the birds did great. And then (laughs) with the birds came different processes that looked at uh, biodiversity areas in general. And then in 2016, the Important Marine Mammal Areas actually was uh, established. And um, one of the leads on that, Giuseppe Nutar Bartolo di Sierra, is... um, has a passion for sharks and he came to me and said why aren't we doing this for sharks and uh, that's how the idea really started a conversation um, something that they had been thinking about for many years and uh, the idea of what does biodiversity look like if you're overlaying the most important habitats for the different species that we care about Mm -hmm. and whether it's you know turtles or sharks or birds or even tuna bluefin tuna commercially important species is what are some of these areas that we need to be conserving Mm -hmm. to make sure that they have um, you know there is sustainability in fisheries and and having preserving biodiversity and this conversation led to this project in a way and it was stars that aligned in so many ways it was a conversation and then there was so much interest from various peoples from funders and it it all came together very quickly Mm -hmm. because as soon as sharks are mentioned people's or at least like in the last like decade or so like people have started to listen a lot more and shown a lot more interest, right? Because the marine mammals were kind of like the first sexy species, if you like. Everyone kind of got on board with them. The birds came first, but now sharks are, are seem to be getting their time, which is which is really lovely. Um, and something that Giuseppe said in the session that I never really thought of is just the value of having these kind of maps that that overlap, so you can sort of maybe see where these hotspots are where the areas of productivity are because you know if whales are potentially feeding in one area you know you most likely are going to have the sharks as well um so that was a a really cool idea for me to help line that up um but we are at the international congress for marine protected areas and i did see that one of the most commonly asked questions about um isras is are they a marine protected area designation in themselves and so I was wondering because because they aren't going to be um but they will they do relate to MPAs so I wondered if we could talk a little bit about what that relationship is um yes so they aren't MPAs as we said and that did come up a lot when we were developing the criteria a lot of people asked you know are they going to be designated as MPAs And basically the way that they were designed is to be biocentric. So they're only focusing on the needs and the requirements of sharks. So any information that relates to why the sharks are there, why they're occurring in that habitat or that environment and why it's important to them is what ISRAs look at and what they delineate so that that information can then be made available to the people that make decisions on whether or not they can put an MPA or any other sort of spatial plans or protected areas there. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that information, I mean, it, it does a kind of exist for some species, right? But 
you know, there is definitely there was definitely a need for Israel, wasn't there? Yeah, we we are trying to identify these areas that, as was mentioned, it could become potentially an MPA, but not necessarily other kind of management and conservation action can get into these specific areas that are important for sharks. Um, some species we have the evidence to identify them. Some species we still don't. And that makes it quite hard to factor sharks in to marine protected area designations. I think I think you said that it's only was it only fifteen percent of MPAs around the world actually overlap with ISRAs? Did I get that wrong? Kind of. <laughs> We're getting into a little uh, of the outputs of our workshop, but yeah, yeah. yeah we. Okay. We have preliminary results showing that the issues we identified are not overlapping too much with existing protected areas. But ISRAs are going to be helping to sort of collate all that information or generate, hopefully, to, to show where the knowledge gaps are um, and feed that into an MPA, potential MPA designation, but not always, not all the time. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the goals to identify where where these management, special management actions could be implemented. Perfect, yeah. So we're kind of getting into like the process of identifying an Israel. So how how does the process even begin? So how do you start to look at what areas might potentially be an important shark and ray area? It's um, it's a four-step process in a way and we start uh, months before we host a workshop in a region where we put out a call that we are coming to a region. For example, the first region that we used was the Central and South American Pacific region where we put out a call for specifically the members of the shark specialist group to begin with and then we started looking a little broader as to who are the experts in the region that have knowledge on habitat use for species and that could contribute to the process and um, what we had was a number of people that were starting to propose areas that they thought were important. The second, proce- the second part of the process was bringing everyone together to a workshop and we discuss how the evidence that was, pr- was, that was being put forward actually helps us determine whether the information that we have fits the, cri- the ISRA criteria. Once we came out of the workshop with consensus as to what we think are the areas that we should be considering, we worked a little more as a team to, to, to make these proposal a little bit more solid and sent them to an independent review panel. So we have four independent reviewers chaired by Colin Simfendorfer that are looking at each of these areas to make sure that the information is robust and that they think um, these could actually be delineated as critical habitats. And obviously the, the last step of all of this is to map them and make sure that they're freely available. And you'll have seen um, at our session today, we launched the, the e-Atlas, so very happy with that. And um, anyone can now go online and 
get the information on each of these areas. And, and again, all of this has been contributed by regional experts and they've shared their data and they've all agreed about these being the areas that should be considered the most important in that particular region. Which is fantastic. And I, I did see uh, on the map that you've separated kind of the the world's oceans into specific regions where you're going to kind of concentrate the efforts for ISRAs in that particular region. So how did you decide what the boundaries of those regions were going to be? Um, we chose 13 regions of the world, and it was mostly based on biogeography of the species, but also um, how the areas were delineated in terms of fisheries areas. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization splits the world into fisheries areas, and that's how data is available. And so by, by combining both, we were able to determine what would be the best 13 regional areas that we could um actually go to and, and workshop to get the areas delineated. Well, come on to, you've already trialed your first workshop, which is really, really exciting. Um, and we'll come on to that in a, in a little bit. But first, I wanted to kind of hone into the information that sort of goes into, so all that evidence base that goes into um, identifying an ISRA. Um, and my first question really was, is it mainly scientific evidence um, or are you going to start including things like local and traditional knowledge as well? Oh, when we started developing the criteria, um, we obviously were looking at the taxon specific, so we're looking at sharks and everything and the scientific knowledge and what is out there on, you know, where they are and where they occur. Mm -hmm. And we did consider that there will be ecological knowledge and there will be people that live in the regions where ISRAs are being, the workshops are being held and they will want to know or they'll have information to share. So I think you can correct me on this, but um, as these guys have gone and done the first workshop, you did have a lot of people there that came forward with ecological knowledge from the regions that has been important in moving forward with the first few ISRAs. Yeah, there are the first region we assess has these kind of issues, but it's happening in a lot of other places that the information is not just put in, in the scientific literature. Mm -hmm. So we're we're gathering all the information available. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter where it comes mm -hmm. and we're including in the process mm -hmm. as part of the evaluation and the identification of these important areas. Yeah. To build that sort of really comprehensive knowledge base right um that we need that's lacking for sharks and i think one of the positive things for this region is there's a huge diving community uh, so a lot of these big areas where there was a lot of information that was contributed from tour operators that saw aggregations that uh, knew of certain areas or behaviors that were happening in, in places that had not been published in the scientific literature mm -hmm. and getting the, the regional teams to communicate with the people that they work with when they're doing their own surveys or um, looking at sources of information that came from local dive operators and, and fishermen as well. We had videos that were contributed by fishermen of aggregations. Mm -hmm. um, and so having that additional information that could support the delineation of areas was very important, especially in, in countries where there was so little published. 
we needed to be able to use this information to be, to be able to understand where species were occurring, to confirm species from the pictures they contributed, from the videos they contributed, and to be able to say, okay, well, the science is not there, but clearly there's enough information there to show that there's the regular and predictable presence of species in certain areas, and, and that was documented in other ways unconventional sometimes not some people may not think it's science but i think um the fact that we had so many records um was was important enough for us to to make sure it was integrated into the identification process yeah absolutely because just because it's not part of you know a, a set scientific project i mean if if we waited for all of that information to come through through a, you know a scientific uh you know research project we'd be waiting a really long time you know we need to wait for the funding to come through and the resources to do that whereas you know you do have people who are out there working on the sea every day or people who are who are diving because you know diving is becoming more and more popular around the world so why not use those sources as long as you, you know you have it backed up by evidence where you can or you know you, you're seeing multiple pictures or multiple footage yeah Emiliano. just to add that's where the independent review panel comes up because they will assess if that information is enough to support. I just, I really like that question and that point and it comes back to something that Rima said to me right back at the start of when we were developing the criteria in the ISRA project is that we're using the information that's available now because sharks and rays and chimeras need something now that's going to bring awareness to their conservation status and in the future as we start to know more and there's more information then you can come back and say well there's the information here now but at least you know it's something and it's happening now and it's important yeah exactly because because correct me if I'm wrong but part of the ISRA's process is you can put an air it's an area of interest right so it doesn't have to become an ISRA straight away it can be kind of like filed away as this could potentially become an area and then in future once that information becomes available or more data becomes available you can then take it foot forward yeah everyone's nodding for I didn't know it was, was that a question <laughs> um, no it's just I don't know, but I do I do have a follow-up question because we are sort of getting into we you did mention the criteria Kieran which um is the process that you led and the paper is available for everyone to read um, but I wondered if we could just talk about the selection criteria so these are the things that the independent review panel will check to say okay this area meets all the meets a certain criteria and that it can become an ISRA and um, so how were the selection criteria developed? Um, so like Rima said it was an expert sort of driven idea and we looked to the experts of the world not just in shark science but biodiversity and policy as well to get their input which we did through a series of workshops where we basically took the idea to them gave them some information based around the criteria of other area-based approaches that had been successful so the immers key biodiversity areas the important burden biodiversity areas and we gave the information and said this is what we're considering in terms of sharks what would you like to see put in or what do you think is important and we had a whole range of discussions around that before we narrowed it down refined it and came up with the set of criteria that we have yeah perfect and can you give us an overview of uh, there are there are so many so i'm not expecting you to go into all the sub criteria i could go into that 
I think I read them that many yeah. times. I, I, could. I think that deserves a whole separate episode in itself. Um, but there are kind of four main criterion that relate to different areas of uh, sharks and rays. So I wondered if you could give us a little overview of those. Yeah, so the criteria focus on different aspects and different attributes of sharks, rays and chimeras. So we looked at things like their vulnerability, which is criterion A, so threatened species, the ones that are listed on the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species are critically endangered, endangered or vulnerable. There's a very high amount of them, so that was obviously a big consideration. Um, there's species that are range restricted, so that's criterion B, and that doesn't necessarily mean geographically restricted. They could be restricted to depth as well. So as Rima said, we've got that three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. uh, life history is criterion C, and that's got a bunch of sub-criteria as well, but that's just looking at areas where there's vital functions occurring, which support species and their life cycles so that they can have those areas where they reproduce or they feed, they gain nutrition, they're getting refuge. The port, like the type of areas which will help recover populations essentially. Mm. And then special attributes. So there's obviously such a huge range of species and different sizes, different you know, life history ca characteristics, reproductive everything. So it was looking at where there is a high diversity of species. So many of them could be occurring and also any distinctive attributes that really set a population or an area apart from other parts in the world that were really unique that should be identified as well. So it could be for, so say like you've got one species across the world, but there could be a specific population of that species that has something special about it that could be, or that area where that species, where that population is. Yeah. I'm trying to think of an example. <laughs> Sorry. We have an example of an area that has just been approved, actually, for a distinct behavior. Um, and this is an area where uh, the Chilean eagle ray feeds. Eagle rays are a family that have uh, plates as teeth, for example. And they, they generally are known to feed at the bottom. And this particular species, in, in part, part of its range, is actually feeding on pelagic animal, uh, fish. So it's actually feeding in the water column, closer to the surface, on these, in this dynamic front where there's a lot of small pelagic fish. And so this is a distinct behavior. It's never been seen for any species in this particular family. Yeah, so that, that kind of, that explains it, yeah. Um, but does an area need to meet all those criteria to become an Israel? No, it doesn't. <laughs> Short answer, no. But yeah, uh, it's enough to have one criterion met, except for criterion A. That criterion has to be associated with another one, but you just need one single species and one single criteria to be identified as an important area. Okay, yeah. Um, and something else that came up in the session that I thought was quite important to clarify is you're not with the ISRAs, they're not going to be identified by threats yet. So just, um, so the like endangered species status, but not kind of an area where there's high fishing pressure, for example. No, it's, as said before, it's pure biocentric. So we're just basing it on the evidence of the ecological use of that particular area. Mm -hmm. Some of those, I'm sure, will be on important fishing areas also. But that's not what we're looking at. And and that's kind of where the MPA 
designation would come in, yeah. So they, they kind of see that this is an important area for sharks and rays, and then they would look at what threats maybe overlap that area and then decide accordingly. I, I just wanted to add, there's obviously very few areas of the world that remain untouched. And so if we were to only identify areas where nothing is happening, we wouldn't have any areas. And there are different levels of pressure, whether it's coastal areas where there's high pressure from artisanal fisheries or, you know, open open water areas where it's industrial fisheries and so on. Um, we really need to think about this as to w what are these areas that are important for the animals. Mm -hmm. And it's going to have to be a decision at that national level, potentially at that regional level, as to what are some of the actions that can be done to reduce that pressure, whether it's fishing, whether it's uh, other processes like aquaculture, farms, like um, the pollution, anything mm -hmm. that might be impacting populations. And again, we said that you know, overfishing is the primary threat, but there are other threats to sharks and rays. And it's really going to depend on that particular country, on that particular location, potentially, as to what are the threats that are overlapping with some of the areas that we think are critical habitats for these species. Yeah, because someone mentioned um, boat collisions in the session. So that would be, you know, very specific to something like a whale whale sharks exactly. or Baskin sharks, we see a lot of them. Mobula, uh, so the, all of the devil rays, yes. So we talked a little bit about the process earlier, um, but you have had your first workshop, which was in Colombia in October last year. Um, so I know I sort of jumped ahead earlier, but can you tell us a little bit about the outcomes of that workshop? So the consensus of the experts participating in the workshop was to come up with 74 uh, candidate issues mm -hmm. and four, five areas of interest. So after the workshop, that 74 proposals went to the review panel, and now we have some final results. We have now 40 mm -hmm. full designated important sharks and ray areas. Yeah, it is it is exciting to see it. Um, we have nine areas of interest. So mm -hmm. the review panel decided that there wasn't enough evidence to to become a, an important shark and ray area. And we have two candidate issues that were designed on that, that at some point, if more evidence is found, could become a full Wow. Isra. And that's a successful first workshop, I would say. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. And also, um, just like a, a, a bit of a, a, a bit of a random thought, but that's a incredibly quick turnaround for the review panel. If it if the workshop happened in October and there were seventy-four that they were reviewing, that's that's quick. <laughs> I think we all need sleep. I think it's been um, it's been a roller coaster ride this year, but it's yeah. it's been fantastic because there's been so much support on so many levels, and I think there's been so much excitement about the project, yeah. which has meant passion going in and and people working overtime and mm -hmm. making sure that things are are happening and. Um, I, I mentioned it in the session, but if anyone that's contributed is listening to this, I cannot stress how much we appreciate the support, uh, the, ex the, you know, the contributions and, and the excitement. It's, it's helped us drive this forward so quickly. And, and yes, it was a huge 
number that we identified, but some of them are very small areas mm -hmm. because we didn't have that information. Some of them are larger areas because there was some information about connectivity and, and that's really important for sharks and rays because mm -hmm. obviously they're not static animals. They're moving around, some of them huge distances, but um, there some very, very small areas for very few species, considering the number of species that are in the region. Mm -hmm. So there is an, an inherent bias right now because of that data availability. Mm -hmm. And I hope that um, for some of these areas that are candidate ISRAs, uh, we can add information to make sure that they are ISRAs between now and, and the next workshop. But um, I hope that it, this process will also lead people to ask the right questions in their research so that we can use that research to actually continue working on this process. And it's something that we found was a huge gap at the first workshop where there's some amazing work that has been published and there's just that one piece of information missing mm -hmm. for us to be able to make that decision. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's part of why we want people to know about this process, because I hope it means that they can incorporate that information if they have it. If they don't have it, hopefully they ask the question so that we can then use that information to feed it into this process. Well, that, that's, that's the, um, we have a lot of early career researchers who are listening to this or potential budding marine scientists. So if you are listening to this and you're trying to think of your question, go and look up the criteria, go and look up the regions. And that should help you figure out where the knowledge gaps are and how to make your, how to come up with a research question, basically, how to angle your research. I couldn't think of the right word to say that, but yeah, how to direct things. But absolutely fantastic work that's happened in the last year and yeah congratulations to everyone who's who has been involved but also to all of you for driving that process like it's the the speed at which it's gone through has been absolutely incredible and you can tell the passion that's behind it so including a team that's not here yeah. that has been working while we were at impact five to make sure that we have the e-atlas ready so yes definitely huge team effort in this as well yeah and i wanted to talk about the the e-atlas just towards the end there so that because it's just come out today we've been yes. the first people <laughs> to actually lay eyes on it at impact five which was really exciting um but now you've had your first workshop um that are lots of other regions in the world where you're hoping to have them. So what is the next, what happens next? What's going to be the next stage of the process? Well, we're after the independent review panels comes with all their decisions. We are putting all the ISRAs, the candidate ISRAs and the AOI in the ATLAS as they come. And then we're going to the next region that is going to be the Mediterranean and the Black Seas. So we're excited about that. It's going to be a lot of work, but like with the first workshop, it's it's really fun. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. And then, so that's kind of the next year. Um, but for the ISRA's process more broadly, what are you hoping to achieve kind of within the next few years? That's a big question. I'm sorry. It is a big question. 
but we have fantastic support. So from Shark Conservation Fund, obviously Save Our Seas Foundation is on the board now as well. So um, fantastic support from uh, from the funders. And that's really been allowing us to be able to push this forward at this speed as well. And um, so Emiliano mentioned we've got the Mediterranean lined up for, uh, for May. Actually, the first week of May is when we will be there. And then uh, late in the summer, we're hoping for the Western Indian Ocean. And um, we've got funding support for another couple of years, and um, we haven't decided on which areas we're going to go next, partly because our decision is driven by MPA action, let's say. If we feel that there is um, commitment, if there is movement towards countries really looking at their spatial planning, looking at uh, redesigning MPAs or declaring new MPAs, that's when we want to make sure they have the information available. And so the, the Central and South American Pacific region was an important first region because many of the countries there committed to 30 before 30. That means that they committed to protecting 30% of their waters before the, the global commitment of 2030. And we wanted to make sure that as they were making some of these uh, declarations and commitments, they have the information available to consider sharks. Yeah, you're going to be you're going to be busy because I feel like everyone's going to start trying to <laughs> to get there quicker and to get there by 2030. So I've already been petitioning for Australia. Yes, she has. <laughs> and there's also, I must say, the UK is also about to implement its highly priority, highly protected marine areas. So there is that as well <laughs> happening. Um, but really exciting. And I can't wait to see where this goes and how things develop. And one of the ways that people can keep up to date with this is... The Atlas. So I don't know if you want to tell our listeners about that and how they can how they can see it for themselves. Well, the Atlas is available in the, it's in the web page from the project Shark Ray Areas. That yeah, I'll, I'll pop it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you can play it in the Atlas. All the areas are displayed. All the designated areas. You can click in each one and get the information. For the areas of interest and the candidate Israel, there's only the summary mm -hmm. because there wasn't enough evidence yeah. to be fully designated. But for the Israel, we have all the information for where it is located, what species were considered, were considered part of the designation and the criteria that were met. And you can download for each of these Israel a fact sheet with all this detailed information. And you also can ask for free to all the special layers that we're designing. So every data that we're producing is available for whichever wants to get. That's brilliant. That's really, really good because a lot of, you know, a lot of our science sort of tends to stay behind a paywall, which, you know, obviously isn't great. So it's amazing that people can access this map and see for themselves the data. And I, I'm guessing as new ISRAs come up, they will be added onto the map so people can keep track that way um but i know there will also be some scientists listening who might wonder how they can get involved with the process um so Rima, i don't know if you want to answer that one 
just to go back to the e-atlas as well, um, no, just to say that the only reason we're asking for people to submit a request is so that we can keep track of who's using it and for what. Mm -hmm. And I think this is really important for us to understand uh, what industries or how people want to use the layers so that we can make sure that we're providing them with the best available product. And so... Uh, we've mentioned this before, but we welcome feedback and there is a, a contact page on the website if there are specific requests or if there is interest in, in supporting the process or in, in asking us to improve on the process. We welcome all comments. And to tackle your, your next question, they can contact us. Um, we have on the regional, on the region page, we have information on the upcoming workshop. So that announcement usually happens about four months before a workshop is planned. So you can go up there and you'll see that the Mediterranean workshop is already there. So if anyone working in the Mediterranean is interested in proposing anything before May, they can contact us through, um, the contact page there and they can submit information and proposals for areas that they think we should consider. So the process is open to everyone. Unfortunately, we cannot invite everyone to a workshop because of budget reasons. <laughs> we we wish we could invite everyone. Uh, but unfortunately, we have to make some decisions. But we do want to clarify that it is a process that anyone can contribute to. Fantastic. So you don't have to come from a scientific background per se or be doing a project you can, you know, say you're a tourism operator, for example, you can. Absolutely. As long as the information that is proposed or, or submitted actually helps us assess whether an area meets the criteria. And, and just to your last point, we were having discussions yesterday with Patty Project Aware and how we can start engaging with some of the regional tour operators, dive operators in the different regions as we come, because they're the ones that actually have information on that regular and predictable presence of species in certain areas. And we think that engaging with them will allow us to bring a lot better data as well that is not published into the process yeah definitely because I, I mean I, I can think of a couple off the top of my head that keep regular you know photo id accounts or you know take uh, sightings data like as they're going so yeah that's that's super super valuable So I'm very conscious of the time because I'm sure you all want to go and have a beer or something or go and chill. Um, but I just have two final questions um, and they are to all three of you. Um, and there's been some really positive steps for shark conservation in the last year. I mean, we had CITES, we've had the development of the ISRAs, um, but obviously there is still a long way to go. We're by no means at the finish line. Um, so I just wanted to ask, um, and Kieran, I'll come to you first, and we'll maybe go this way. Um, but what are your hopes for shark conservation, shark conservation um, in the near future? That's a good question. I have a lot of hopes because there is a lot more awareness around it now and a lot more awareness of where the gaps are in research and knowledge that need to be filled in order to help initiatives like ISRA projects and even just other scientific research to be able to create sort of management and protective plans for these species. So I definitely have a lot of hope that the more conversations that we're all having about sharks and rays now is going to make a difference in the future for when we come back and look at what we've sort of initiated now to see how we've progressed and what we've protected. 
Yeah, that's such a good one. And I definitely, I definitely feel that, especially around CITES. I don't know if that's just because I was talking about it, but, you know, my family were invested and they generally just don't have any idea what I do at all. Um, and, you know, my friends and you could definitely see on social media there's 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 more traction. So, yeah, that's really lovely. Emiliano, how about how about you? Well, yeah, you just mentioned that it seems that sharks are in the spotlight. We're seeing it. The impact five sharks are everywhere in the screens. <laughs> So now the general public is aware, it's engaging. So this makes that decisions have to be made. Yeah, every time a keynote showed a video of a shark, I felt a little like, yes, <laughs> yes, they're there. Um, it's been, yeah, Impact 5 has been, has been great for sharks. Not only the keynote, downstairs where everyone's having lunch, the, the, the TV has sharks on it. And so that's been really, really exciting to see so much interest, so much talk about sharks. And, and I agree with what Kieran and Emiliano have said that there's hope because there's so much interest. And I, I live in a part of the world where marine conservation is just picking up now. And I used to be the crazy one where we would be at meetings and, oh, let's talk about sharks. And I'd be like, why are we talking about sharks? And, and I would always bring it up and I don't need to do that anymore. They're talking about it before I have to. And that for me is so exciting because it means that um, we're finally reaching that global level where people are starting to care. And if they don't care, they still know that it has to be part of the conversation. And I think that's the first step. And I hope and I think it will continue to grow as a momentum. And, and this is why it's exciting. CITES was exciting this year because we had so many species that were listed and there's been so much interest in the ISRA project and that's, that's been really positive. But I think beyond that, at fisheries management organizations, there's a lot more consideration in terms of what we should do to start talking about shark conservation at different levels from fisheries to trade to spatial planning. So I think that's really exciting. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really exciting time and um, a really exciting time to live through as well. Because I remember when I, I mean, we, we've all grown up in very different places, but I mean, in, in the UK, there's there wasn't much recognition that we had sharks at all. They were seen as a very tropical thing. And now that has changed so much. There's so much more interest in the species of shark that we have. So, so yeah, and on a more global level too, um, which is, yeah, very exciting. And that's such a, a lovely note to, to end it on. But we do have one final question, which is a very serious, um, a very, very serious question that requires a lot of deep thought um, I mean, I joke about that, but a lot of people do actually panic about this question and do give it a lot of deep thought. Um, <laughs> um, but that question is, if you could be any species of shark, ray, skate or chimera in the world, what would you be and why? So I will leave it up to you guys who wants to answer that one first. Why are you looking at me? Okay. Um, <laughs> so... My favorite species changes every day. So that's, that's a problem to begin with. But <laughs> um, it's not necessarily a favorite species, but a favorite behavior. I would love to be a whale shark or a great white shark just because of their ability to be from surface waters to very deep waters and travel huge expanses. The things that they're seeing as they're traveling, no one can even imagine. And, and that for me would be 
amazing just having that ability to to travel underwater at different depths and see what's there yeah right how am i gonna top that (laughs) (laughs) that'd be very cool very very cool okay rima just mentioned one of the reasons that i choose mine well it's actually my favorite species it's blue shark they're almost everywhere Mm -hmm. almost everywhere in the planet they are just sweeping wherever they want so yeah that's that's the species I will be. Nice, nice. They're very, very sleek and a very beautiful species as well. Mm-hmm. And curious too. You need to say array now. Oh, of course I'm saying array. I had that lined up like for days. <laughs> Don't think we've actually we've only had one ray so far, so I'm very excited. Really? Okay, I'm yeah. definitely representing the rays, but I don't think that my answer is as insightful as Emiliano and Rima. <laughs> it's okay, it doesn't have to be. <laughs> I went with Australian whip ray because obviously array, Australian, but leopard prints just yeah I I just had to go with that I think looking that pretty and hanging out under the water I think that was a good one for me especially in the the lovely warm waters yeah definitely definitely good choice definitely warm yeah yeah good choice oh they're all such good answers and this has been so fantastic you've answered all of my questions amazingly well even though we are right at the end of impact five and we're all tired but it's been such a joy to talk to you thank you for coming onto the podcast and talking to us all about isras it's been an absolute joy to have you all thank you and for your interest in the project and having us (laughs) thank you no worries my absolute pleasure the world of sharks podcast is brought to you by the save our seas foundation it was hosted and edited by me Isla Hodgson. Our beautiful artwork is by Jamie Silver and the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. A monumental thank you to Rima, Emiliano and Kieran for taking time out of Impact 5 to talk to me and chat all things Isra's. They'd given about five talks at this point so I'm so grateful to them for pushing through like absolute troopers. If you'd like to find out more about the project, you can head to www.sharkrayareas.org where you can find all the things we were talking about today, including that super cool interactive atlas. And thank you at home for listening. If you like this episode, it would be awesome if you could just drop us a rating and a nice review on your podcast app. We absolutely love hearing from you. It helps us to improve and it also helps to spread the word about how amazing sharks are and who doesn't want that. You can also get in touch by emailing Isla at saverseas.com. If you have any topics you want covered or you just want to say hi, it's always nice. And you can find out more about the Save Our Seas Foundation and the work that we do by heading to www.saveourseas.com or following us on social media. We are at Save Our Seas on Twitter and at Save Our Seas Foundation on Instagram. Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we will see you next time.